Good morning, everybody. Can I say good morning to all of you at 95th Street and everybody at Bolingbrook and everybody at Hobson? What do you think of John the Baptist? What a guy, huh? I hope you're growing to appreciate him more as I am. And I'm, I'm praying that you also you know, understand increasingly why Jesus said, study this guy, look at his life, follow his example, because, you know, John is just an inspiring man of God. And so we continue our study of the anatomy of greatness. I want to tell you about a guy named Brian. In fact, let's put Brian's picture up. Brian Kolodajczuk. Kolodajczuk, that's his name. What a name. Polish name, but a Canadian guy uh, who actually studied in New York and San Francisco to become a priest, as you can tell by the collar. And he was given this unbelievable assignment by the Catholic Church. And that was to be the person who builds the case for Mother Teresa becoming a saint. In fact, let's add Mother Teresa's picture. If you recall, last fall, Mother Teresa, uh, 20 years after her death, was voted in and made officially a saint. You know, the highest distinction of honor by the Catholic Church. And When Brian was given Mother Teresa, he's like, man, what a slam dunk. Everybody sees her as a saint for crying out loud. She started this organization called the Missionaries of Charity that now has 4,500 full-time missionaries in the organization serving in 133 different countries. Everybody loves Mother Teresa. So he thought, this will be so easy. Well, His job is to research, and so he went to Mother Teresa's friends and said, hey, I'm doing research on her. Do you have any letters that she wrote to you? And these friends were like, uh, maybe. And he's like, well, if you don't mind, give them to me. You know, on behalf of the church, uh, give them to me. You know, you could see their hesitancy. Well, they did. They turned them over, but they always said the same thing. Mother Teresa wanted these burned. But now they're on your shoulders. You decide what to do with them. And so he was like, why does she want them burned? And she, he started to read these letters. And maybe you heard about this. It became evident that Mother Teresa struggled with terrible doubt, horrific doubt, agonizing doubt. She had times where she was very confident and believed, believed that God loved her and that he was near. But she had other moments, more moments, where she doubted the nearness of God. She doubted the love of God for her. She burned with a love for God, but there were times where she just struggled to believe 
God loved her. Some really dark times, she doubted the existence of God. And as Brian reads these letters, he's like, oh boy, oh boy, this is not good. And what does he do? He can, he can burn them and try to perpetuate an imbalanced knowledge of the woman. Or he can reveal them, which he thought may destroy her case for sainthood. In the end, Brian decided to make them public. In fact, they're published in a a book called uh, Mother Teresa, uh, Come Be My Light. And he came to this conclusion. He said, I don't believe that doubt disqualifies someone for being great in God's eyes. He said, in fact, I would argue that Mother Teresa's doubt increases her case for sainthood. Because in the face of such agonizing doubt, she remains steadfast in her devotion to Jesus and selfless service of the poor. And through all of that agony, she wouldn't relent in her commitment to follow Christ, even when she found belief hard to come by. Interesting. Fascinating question. How does God feel about doubt? And what does doubt say about a person's greatness in God's eyes? And this is a topic that's very applicable to our study of John the Baptist because John doubted. Man, did he doubt. Are you ready? Yeah, you've had a real high and lofty view of John. I hope this doesn't mess with that. Let's see what it does. We're going to be studying out of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 2. It says, when John, who was in prison, pause, why is he in prison? Well, there's some great drama where John's devotion to the Lord led to him being imprisoned by an evil king placed in a dungeon in this fortress on the Dead Sea. Not only placed there, he sat there, he rotted there week after week, month after month for nearly a year. John sat in this prison. And it's in that painful context that we read, John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, that'd be Jesus, and John sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we just expect somebody else? Wow. Do you see what that is? He is doubting the Messiahship of Christ. The one who proclaimed Jesus as Messiah. We already studied that. The very first human being to announce Christ as the Messiah, Jesus as the Christ, is John. And John, in this season of darkness, is just saying, you go ask Jesus, are you or are you not the Messiah? Because if you're not and we're supposed to wait for someone else, just say it. Wow. Wow. Why? Why is John doubting so much? Well... Let's speculate together, shall we? Maybe Jesus had not met his expectations. Maybe Jesus, in his practice of subtlety, do you know that Jesus was very subtle? People would say, you're the Messiah, and Jesus would say, shh, don't tell anybody that yet. Maybe that drove John crazy. Maybe John wanted Jesus to be bold and loudspeaker. Hey, everybody, I'm the Messiah. And Jesus was real subtle about the revelation of his true identity. Maybe that bothered John. Maybe it was that Jesus was not judging the evil in the land 
like he had expected. If you recall, John was the one who said, Jesus is going to have the winnowing fork, and he's going to scoop up all the chaff, which symbolized evil people, and throw them into the fire and burn, you know, go get them, Jesus. And Christ was coming with a very gentle, love-based, forgiveness-based message. And yes, the judge role of Christ is still to come, but it's quite possible John was expecting it there and then. And here John is rotting in prison with an evil man over him. And he's like, that's chaff, Lord, get him, get him. And Jesus didn't get him. Maybe John wanted Jesus to rescue him from prison. That's fair, huh? Uh, You know, I'm in here because of you, and you're in the area. Why don't you stop by, you know? And you're doing miracles, and they're cool, but I'll tell you one that would be really cool. I hear you walk on the water. Ooh, how about you walk over to the prison and get me out, you know? And Jesus says, I could, but I won't. And John is doubting. How do you doubt? Do you doubt? You know, we we Christians want to hide the fact that we struggle with doubt. Doubt's been a big part of my life there. I just said it. Maybe your doubt is like Mother Teresa. You doubt the love of God for you. Maybe like Mother Teresa, you doubt the existence of God. Maybe like Mother Teresa, you doubt the nearness of God. Maybe like John the Baptist, you doubt that Jesus is who he claims to be. Some people doubt the Bible. You know, they say, oh, this is the perfect inspired word of God, but it's got stories of all the animals of the world coming into a boat and the world flooding. Do I really believe that? And Jonah getting swallowed by a whale. Do I believe that? Uh, Some people doubt the goodness of God. They see suffering in this world and kids agonized by terrible disease. And they say, how can I believe there's a good God who allows this? Doubt comes in so many flavors, so many forms. What does that say when we doubt? What does it say about us? Well, let's continue to read what it says about John. Verse 4, Jesus replied to those who came and announced John's doubting question. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and report what you hear. And this is what you should say. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, that's an awesome verse. We're going to talk more about it but not right now. Um, We'll come back to it. Blessed, verse 6, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Why, Why does Jesus feel the need to speak to the crowd about John? Because the crowd's view of John is falling by the second. The crowd is going, I can't believe John's a doubter. I thought he was a hero. I guess not. And their view of doubt is a real bad one. And Jesus has to step in and rescue John's falling reputation. And Jesus says, let's talk about John. What did you guys go out into the desert, the wilderness, to see? In other words, 
Who is this guy, John, that lived in the wilderness? Who did you go to see? Was he a reed swayed by the wind? This is an imagery of a weakling. You know, just like a reed or a piece of grass gets bent over and crushed by a little breeze. Is that John? A little hardship comes his way and he falls apart? No! Jesus says, John is a man of strength. Yes, you can be a strong man and still doubt. Jesus says, if not, uh, read, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. You know, this is a, is John a, a charlatan who's just after the money doing ministry so that he can get rich? You know, no, he's, the king's palaces are filled with those types. John's a humble, selfless, high-character guy. Jesus continues, then what did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. This is a quote of John's role as found in the Old Testament, the one who goes ahead of the Messiah to prepare the way for him. And so John was a prophet, and more than that, he was the pinnacle prophet, the one who prepares the way for Jesus. And Jesus says, verse 11, Truly I tell you that among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. There's our verse. That's the verse the whole series, The Anatomy of Greatness, is based on. Some of us were wondering, would Jesus have called John the greatest if he knew John struggled with doubt? And then we discover that the utterance of John's greatness is precisely at the moment John's doubt is revealed. That is huge. It demonstrates to to Jesus, to the Lord, doubting is okay. Nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, it can say something really good about us. And you say, what can it say good about us? What, What is doubting? Doubting is wrestling for the truth. That's what it is. Doubting is not, I have come to firm conviction that this Christian assertion is false. That's not doubting. Doubting is, I want to believe, but man, to be honest, right now I am unconvinced. There is uncertainty that remains within me. Doubting is a journey of seeking the truth. And if you're wrestling and wanting to know the truth, that speaks well of you. There are some people who just don't care about ultimate things. Is there a God? Is there heaven? Is is Jesus the Savior? They just, I don't know. I don't think about that kind of stuff. That's unfortunate. Doubters are those who desperately long for the truth. And so, doubting is not a bad thing. In fact, it can be real good. I remember when I was struggling so deeply with doubt. And for me, it was the existence of God. I was a college student, a biology major, so a little scientifically minded. And as a wannabe scientist, the notion of, I have an invisible friend who walks with me and I talk with him, you know, just sounded anti-intellectual. And I was embarrassed to hold it. And I, I was not willing to share about my doubt with anybody but my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. 
And Jen freaked out. Oh, great, my boyfriend's doubting the existence of God, you know. And what she did was she told her dad, I've spoken of my father-in-law recently as he passed a month ago. And one of the great ways he ministered to me was during that season of doubt. He came to me and he said, so Jen tells me uh, you're doubting the existence of God. And I'm like, oh, thanks, Jen. Oh, that's great. Uh, (laughs) Tell your dad he's going to chase me to the street because he wants no atheist dating his Christian daughter. And he said, Jeff, that's awesome. I'm like, oh, I don't think you understood. I'm doubting the existence of God. That's not awesome. And he said, I'm delighted. I go, what are you talking about? He said, Jeff, if, if you had just kind of half-heartedly received your parents' faith and never agonized, never processed whether you really believe this for yourself, that would have resulted in a conviction that would have not been of weighty substance. But as it is, you have entered into a passionate searching for the truth, and I believe God's going to use this painful journey to bring you to a place of faith that will mark your life forever. He goes, this is right, and this is beautiful. And I'm like, wow. His prophetic, if you will, utterance in my life in that difficult moment marked me, and it marked my journey, and he was right. It ended in faith. And so, folks, let's not view doubt as a bad thing. A lot of times, you know, we're a mixed bag. I have faith, but I got a little doubt. I, I have belief, but I got some uncertainty. It's, it's all jumbled in there together. And I'm going to say something provocative here. That's what God intended. God intended us to struggle with doubt. You say, why do you say that? I say that because if God didn't want us to struggle with doubt, he could have made himself visible, Right? I mean, God could be appearing in the sky, 3,000 feet tall, thundering voice, Jeff Griffin, here I am, I am real, and there's Jesus, and he's my son, and the Bible, I wrote it, you know, and, and no, no doubts, but God chose subtlety, invisibility, silence. He does miracles, but not as many as we would like, and as a result, God has created an environment where those who are willing to wrestle through doubts will find faith and conviction. And those who just don't care about ultimate things won't. Uh, That's God's strategic plan. It reminds me of uh, when I was a junior higher. I went up northern Wisconsin to a vacation home owned by a uh, family of friends. And my buddy, he said to me when we were going up, he goes, Jeff, there, there is a raspberry patch that is to die for. He goes, you ever had wild raspberries? I'm like, "Uh uh-uh. He goes, oh, oh, you wait. And we were walking down the path through the woods to this raspberry patch, and it had rained a lot. And he goes, oh, boy, this is what I worried about. He said, when it's rainy, there is a marsh between here and the raspberry patch that we're going to have to trudge through. He goes, do you mind getting your gym shoes muddy? No. Pants muddy? No. I'm a junior hire. I don't care. And uh, he's like, all right. And sure enough, I mean, we were trudging through thick mud. But you had to get through the swamp to get to the patch. And boy, those raspberries were worth the effort. And that's kind of like doubt. Doubt is a necessary part of the Christian journey. And you got to go through it if you're going to arrive at faith. And so people struggle with doubt to differing degrees. But let's take the stigma away. 
and acknowledge this as a beautiful... Now, can a doubt be destructive? Sure, if you don't go about it the right way, it can destroy you. But if approached in God's plan, it can result in beautiful, glorious things. And John the Baptist is a demonstration of that. Well, that being said, let's go back to... Let's go back to a couple verses that I've already skipped over and let's take a look at what John models for us on how to handle doubt. Can we go to verse 2 again? Uh, Just reading one more time. John was in prison, dark time, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, sent his disciples. Clearly, he talked about his doubt with his disciples. Here, let me just draw out some observations. Number one, John faced his doubt. Sometimes Christians are so ashamed of doubt. They're like, I'm not doubting. I'm not doubting. I'm not doubting. I'm, I'm not. You know, they're standing at the coffin at the wake of a friend or family. And they're, you know, so tempted to say, do I really believe that he's in heaven? She's in heaven right now. And they're like, I don't really want to think that way. Folks, don't deny your doubt. Own it. John did. Talk to people about it. He talked with his disciples, the very guys who were following him because they were inspired by his maturity. He's like, all right, gentlemen, you need to know something about me. Right now I'm doubting whether Christ is who he says he is. And that transparency is such a beautiful thing. Are you in a group? I hope you are. If you're in a group, talk about your doubts. Say, you know, there's something that I always struggle with and I'm just going to say it. Uh, let's not try to hide it and pretend we are who we're not. By processing it with friends, it just may be God's solution comes through them sharing something from their perspective that you're like, you know, that's true. And they are God's agent to help you in your doubt. And so let's be a safe place to process our doubts with others. John talked with his disciples. Thirdly, First, he owned it. Secondly, he processed it with his friends. Thirdly, he went to Jesus. Let's go right to the man and say, Jesus, help me. I'm doubting, John says. Are you or are you not? And we should do the same. We should come right to Christ. Turn to him and say, all right, Lord, it is what it is. There's this matter that I'm struggling with. Can you help me journey through the swamp to the raspberry patch of faith? And Jesus will help you. Did he help John? You bet he did. Let's go back to that, shall we? Verse 4. This is where, remember, Jesus said, okay, go back and report to John. Here's what you're to tell him. The blind see, the lame are walking, the lepers are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Folks, those are the things that the book of Isaiah describes as prophetic expectations of the Messiah. Jesus directs John to his favorite book. And why do I say Isaiah was John's favorite book? Because Isaiah is the one that has his job description in it, the guy who comes to prepare the way for the Messiah. That's Isaiah. And so we can speculate that John loved Isaiah. Oh, Isaiah is my book. It's got me. I'm in it, you know. And Jesus says, go to Isaiah and look at the prophetic expectation and remind them how I am fulfilling each of them. Jesus provided John the evidence John needed to get through his doubts. And Jesus will do the same for you. Now, what evidence you need 
Is Bible prophecy, Christ-fulfilling prophecy, is that what you need? Maybe it is. But maybe not. Jesus knows what evidence you need, and that evidence he will provide in the unique way you need it. you got to go for it, as John went for it. How, how do you go for it? Well, you study. You search for answers. The whole field of defense for our faith is called apologetics. Maybe you know that. There are books on apologetics, videos on apologetics. We did a ser- sermon series on apologetics last fall called Rethink. We talked about evidence for the existence of God, evidence for Jesus and his divinity, evidence for the Bible being the inspired word of God. And maybe you need to go back and look at Rethink. That series is still available on our website. But seek the evidence. And sure enough, God will provide you. I'm always amazed at how different evidence works for different people. You know, the same thing, like for me, a couple things. One, the design in the world just spoke power. I think as a biology major, when I saw the complexity of DNA and human anatomy, and I, I look at that complexity and I just say, is this the result of random acts of chance? No! There is a designer behind the design. That just spoke so powerfully to me. Uh, the Bible spoke so powerfully to me. As I studied scripture, I just saw the wisdom from another world. I felt a resonance deep in my soul that this is truth from God. God, I felt this weird dynamic of God speaking to me through the book. So these were things that really worked for me. C.S. Lewis, it was morality. The, The undeniable existence of morality in our world convinced him of God's existence. I read another author this week who, it was joy, human joy, he articulated, bears witness to God's existence. For other people, it's beauty in the world proves God exists. Others, it's love in the world proves God exists. Others say it's evil in the world that in a circuitous route actually proves there must be a good God. And uh, folks, there's so much good stuff out there as far as evidence. And if you go for it, he will help you. Now, will he help you eliminate all doubt? You know, some would say, yeah, I feel like I don't have doubt anymore. Most people grow in belief, but still maintain some doubt. And that's okay. There may be aspects of scripture that are still unresolved and some ethical questions that you just don't have a good answer for, that's okay. Decisions of faith are made in the presence of doubt all the time. I'll use my wife marrying me as an example. She had a little doubt for a long, long time. Uh, Jen and I dated for eight and a half years before she agreed to marry me. And it was not because I was hesitant. She just struggled to commit, to take the leap of faith, if you will. And she's like, I don't know, maybe this is what's right, maybe not. And she dated other guys, examined the evidence, if you will, and came back and said, Jeff, I'm in. 
It was kind of fun. When I uh, proposed, I played a song over the stereo at the moment I proposed. Way back in the early 90s, Lionel Cartwright had a song, Leap of Faith. Some of you recall that song. Good song. You want a no-risk guarantee before you take a chance, the song went. You want to know how the song will end before you start to dance. Take a leap of faith. Cast away your doubt. Darling, come what may, we can work it out. The first step's always the hardest one to take. It's a leap of faith. And I played that song. And Jen, though she didn't know that I wasn't going to turn to a monster after the ceremony, though she didn't know we were going to have a good marriage, she said, I know enough. And she bet the farm. And she married me. And that's how it is. You know, Mother Teresa would say, I doubt some, I believe some, and I've bet the farm on Jesus Christ. John the Baptist would say, I doubt some, I believe more, and I've bet the farm on Jesus Christ. How about you? You doubt some, you believe some. You got to choose who you're going with. Uh, Let's go back to verse 6. Can we do that again? Jesus said, blessed, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. I know, Jesus says, my subtlety, my approach, the Father's approach has created an environment where sometimes it's hard to believe. But blessed are those who hang in there and stay devoted even through the battles with doubt. May that be true of you and may that be true of me. And may that be true of our church. Man, I want to be a church where it's okay to doubt, where we're on a journey together, where our struggles are real and we talk about them and we love each other even in the midst of the struggle. And may we together grow in faith all the time. It'll bring soul peace and love for God and it will honor each of us along the way. Will you pray with me? Lord, I do thank you for the transparency of the Bible. I love that you didn't hide the fact that John struggled with doubt. You didn't bury the record. You you shared it with us. And I thank you for that transparency. And I ask, God, that you'd help each of us to be like John, to not be ashamed of our doubts, God, to own it and to process it and with you grow through it. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who doubt. Would you give them a courage to wrestle and the faith to win? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.